Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Eden Brook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to be talking with my friend Jared DePesqual today. Early in his career, Jared apprenticed under an Emmy Award-winning composer where he learned the business of composing for top-rated TV shows. Now Jared is an award-winning composer and producer for multiple audio dramas. He has scored thousands of projects, including The Legends of Robin Hood, Little Women, Les Mis, Focus on the Family Radio Theater, and Adventures in Odyssey. Jared is actually in the middle of a score for Adventures in Odyssey about the sinking of the Titanic, so I'm very grateful for Jared taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us today. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, hello, my friend Jared. How are you? Good, Marty. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for letting me come over to your beautiful studio today. Absolutely, man. And talk with you. you. And uh, man, you do some incredible work in audio dramas and scoring, orchestrating these amazing productions and all these wonderful things that you do musically. Um, The way that I met you the first time was as a guitar player. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, We go, go to church together. We for, I think we actually met at a Christmas party. I yeah, feel that like that's right. the yeah, word, that's probably the, the first time. We met. Yeah. And you came up to me and we got a, struck up a conversation. And then I got to watch you play. And I was like, dang, dude, this guy's really, really good. <laughs> You're and, very kind. Uh, and I loved it. And I love that we've been able to be friends and just hang out and enjoy each other's company. And yeah. I've learned lots from you as just as far as, you know, orchestration and plug-ins and different types of sounds that you use. And um, it, that's been fun just to to learn those things just in general, but sure. real quick, let's start off. What got you into music to begin with? Mm. Yeah, you know, I, it's, the, it's the same answer every time. It's 1977. My parents me, take me to see Star Wars in the movie theater. Oh, no. And it's, it's hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. But you know what the thing was is it wasn't, I wouldn't have said at that age it was music. I would have said it was the entire experience that just like enveloped me. So it was, it was everything. It was the visuals. It was the actors. It was the music. It was just everything sure but that was really the power of like the first mention of music so i always say that john williams is is the absolute reason i started and then you put star wars with empire strikes back and indiana jones and that's my childhood wow yeah what was it musically that drew you in to into those movies like what was it about the the score that just captivated you you know it was so it was so visual and it was so emotive to me. I mean, that the, the first Star Wars movie, 
besides the big brass theme, you, you've got all these quirky themes of the Jawas and the sand people. It was just so diverse. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard that. First, you'd never seen creatures like that to begin with. Sure. But then that there were sounds attached to these creatures. So that whole experience just was so powerful to me. How old were you when yeah, that movie seven. came out? Seven. Oh, you were seven. Yeah, oh, yeah. Seven. Born in 1971. Okay. Just a couple years. Just a just couple years. Just a couple years older than me. <laughs> so that's cool. Uh, and then, so Star Wars and Indiana Jones, these big orchestral action-adventure type movies are captivating you. And what drew you to guitar? Yeah. So then, but so then, so pause, because I did nothing with music. It okay. was just, it was just in my headspace. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't until like, eighth grade and I started to get into rock music like every, like everybody does you know like older brother I don't have an older brother but like older brothers would show you The Police or right. they'd show you Rush or Zeppelin or it was just getting into rock music and just sort of like really um, latching on to the energy and you know I was a really serious baseball kid and for whatever reason when I went to high school I didn't try out for the baseball team I don't know why I just didn't and I think my mom had some sort of intuition that like it's not good for a high school boy to do nothing. So my mom said, hey, if I paid for guitar lessons, would you do it? So I said, yeah, sure. So ninth grade, I took my first guitar lesson and it was it was like some instant connection with that instrument and with, with to play rock music um, that just kind of like collided and it was like no looking back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I know that. Which is, which is pretty much most everybody. Yeah. You know? Oh, of course. That was, you know, that was me. I started when I was four years old. <laughs> the youngest student my my guitar teacher uh, has ever had and he was like he told my mom he's like I don't think he's going to be able to do this at this age he's just too young his hands are too small and but I was determined yeah you know I knew this is what I wanted to do and I took to it and I'm the youngest student that he's ever had and you know and I've made a living being able to do music yeah that's the beautiful thing about determination I always say determination beats talent any day of the week sure of course there's talent all over the place but it's the people who don't give up that end up being successful and that's my story you know of course okay so playing guitar in high school and then as you move into college what transition (laughs) well that even by itself was tough because okay you know I technically I would have started music late starting music at 14 is to me starting late um and so, but I was very serious. I mean, I, I neglected everything else in my life, neglected all my studies, you know, and I just... Played, which we don't recommend. Which we don't recommend. But, <laughs> but it, it happens. But it happens. <laughs> um, and all I did was play guitar. Yeah. But, you know, you know, I don't come from a family of musicians. So right. when I expressed the desire to do music, mm-hmm. my parents really had no idea what that meant or what to do with it. Um, and so, you know, after a lot of, you know, kind of tense discussions with my parents, um, or my father and my mother was on board... Um, they gave me permission to audition for colleges. But, you know, I grew up on the East Coast where um, there are really, there's a lot of high-end music conservatories. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself auditioning for some top-flight conservatories that I would I would not get in. I didn't get in. I mean, I got laughed at. For a guitar? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, because for that, it's just jazz guitar. Right. Um, And, you know, I was not a bebop player at that point. And so they all turned me down, and I just remember thinking, oh, my God, you know, what am I going to do? But I got into a music school, Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, and it was a good music school, but they, they, I guess they just saw that I had the talent and the, at least the drive to, to learn. Right. And so, you know, then I went to music school and got a Bachelor of Music in Guitar Performance, with, uh, which then transitioned into a composition emphasis. Okay, so the idea of going into composing 
for dramas and for scoring projects that came out of that transition in college pretty much yeah well yeah so you know like i said you know like there was this there was the seven-year-old jared and i always refer to seven-year-old jared because he's he's important was the love of story Mm -hmm. his music is a part of a bigger bigger picture yeah music is part of it and so that was always there but you know you transfer into rock and you you know you play in bands and that's fun and blah 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 um, but there was just something in college where, but you know, the one thing was that even when I picked up guitar, I always wanted to create my own music. You know, while I would like listen to Jimmy Page and learn the guitar riff or whatever, it was more about, I want to write my own riff. I want to write the riff that one day maybe a kid of would course. play. Yeah. So it was more like that. And so guitar was sort of a means of expression to me rather than like a virtuoso okay. thing. But in college, I, um, my roommate... Uh, had a ton of music gear and he would go off on the weekends with his girlfriend and so he wouldn't come home the whole weekend and I asked him permission hey can I turn on your gear and start noodling around and he said yeah that's fine and so all of a sudden I started to use technology you know all of at least the technology of the day and sequencing and and I would just write I would just write for 40 hours straight over Mm -hmm. the weekend you know and it was sort of like that alongside that in 1992 or 91 when I was in music school, there was a lot of great film scores coming out. Michael Kamen had just done Robin Hood. John Barry had just done um, Dances with Wolves. Jerry Goldsmith had just done Total Recall. So there were these, like, these really powerful scores. Yeah. And that, ju- it just hit me like a ton of bricks where it was like, oh yeah, seven-year-old Jared, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, but that's a, that's a tall order for a kid that hasn't been in music all that long to try to like ramp yourself up to do it but that's what i wanted to do yeah yeah tell a story sure and you're determined yes and, and, and i'm it, determined and it comes back to that determination <laughs> Absolutely. It's if, a, yeah you'll if you want something bad enough you'll find a way to make it happen yes you know yeah unless god tenacious. just says this is not for you then you know he can he can say he can say this is not for you totally. but you know if yeah. that uh, if that's an opportunity yeah if the doors to aren't take, totally nailed shut right, i'll go I'll for try it try to open it up yeah, yeah. for sure that's and that's awesome. a lot of what would transition me from college into the professional world was really more of a reflection of my tenacity and my ability to take risks than it was my talent. Sure. Because there were plenty of talent. There were probably more talented kids in the music school than me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So after you transitioned out of college into the professional arena, uh, what was your first job um, in scoring and how did you, how did you land that gig? Yeah, well, so the, I think the, the one thing that I did in college, which was pretty cool and a pretty good risk, was that um, I didn't go home for college during the summers. And, and so at that time, a lot of amusement parks were doing live shows. Mm-hmm. And so um, I auditioned for Cedar Point, which is in Sandusky, Ohio. They were doing, they were hiring a lot of musicians, and mostly college ones. And so I auditioned as a guitar player, yeah. and I could read music. So, you know, as a guitar player, you can read music. You're already, like, heads and shoulders above everybody. Of course. Um, and so I played 400 shows a summer for three years. So by the time I graduated college, I had about, like, 2,000 shows under my belt. Wow. And that teaches you something. Yeah. It also taught me that I didn't want to play live shows. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm good. But, but... But but the point was was that I had developed myself as a as a pretty decent guitar player, yeah. um, and that helped me in my pursuit of becoming a professional. That it was like a tool I had, that I wasn't just a writer, but hey, I could play. Sure, you know, 
And, and for me, you know, when I was in music school and I was a senior in music school and all of a sudden it dawned on me, oh my goodness, I'm going to graduate and what am I going to do? Because at that time, college was not all that, they just didn't know how to help you launch it. They, they just knew how to help you get better. Right. And so I applied to get into um, USC film school and I got into USC, but I remember thinking, wow, this is going to be a lot of money and I'm totally on my own on this one. And so I applied for some grants and there was a man who... Um, he said, hey, you've, you've applied to the grant too late, but I really think you've got some talent, and I have a friend doing what you want to do. And that was um, the, the composer Joseph Leduca. Okay. And so I spent my senior year of college just trying to get to know Joe through a couple of phone calls randomly. And he was very kind, and he would take a phone call because he was so busy. But, but, but we kind of liked each other. He was a guitar player who moved into scoring, and he knew I was a guitar player. You yeah. know what I mean? So you had that familiar, the yeah, familiarity. Yeah, there was this, yeah, sort of like, yeah, like bass starting thing, that we weren't these, like, classical kids. Right. You know what I mean? And so during the summer, that summer after I graduated, and I had to make a decision for USC, I had to tell him whether I was going or not. I talked to Joe because I really wanted to work for him, but you who am I? I'm nobody. And he said, okay, there was a new synthesizer that just came out at the time. It was the Kurzweil K2000. It was the big sampler at the time. And he said, I need someone to learn that library and to transfer all of my old samples into the Kurzweil. Can you do it? And I said, yes. I didn't even know, what, know what that I meant. didn't even know what a Kurzweil <laughs> K2000 But if you was. always say yes. I mean, it was, it's amazing yes. how, how like foolish I was to just do it. Do you know what I mean? Just oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. But anytime somebody that's in those positions says, can you do this for me? You say yes, you say, and, yeah. then you figure and then you it figure it out. it out. And that's what I did. And so he said, okay, why don't you drive up to Detroit? Because he lived in Detroit. He commuted to L.A. weekly, but he lived in Detroit because that's where he wanted to raise his family, wow. his kids. Um, and he said, drive up to Detroit. And I was living in Texas, finishing up a gig for Opryland. So I drove nice. straight from Texas to Detroit in my car did an interview with him, and he said, okay, I'll give you two weeks of work. I'll pay you for two weeks to reprogram this Kurzweil. And so I called up a friend, and I lived in my friend's basement for two weeks in Detroit, just kind of hell-bent on making two weeks turn into something more. And I did the Kurzweil thing, and it worked out. And he said, okay, well, here's another job for you. You know, was, these are like low-level studio yeah. jobs. But it just showed you my diligence. You have to start somewhere. Though. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. And, and it was a beautiful studio. I mean, it was a big SSL console. I was like, it was thrilled. Um, and so, like, you know, you turn a week into two, into three, into four, into four years, you know. Yeah. And slowly he would give me more responsibility. You know, he let me play guitar on a, on a spot or, you know, he let me orchestrate. It was just like this slow thing. As he got to know me and trust me, he gave me more responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And so what projects did you work on with him? Can we talk about that? Yeah. When I came to work for Joe, he had just finished scoring Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. And Sam Raimi now is a very big name because Sam went on to do the Spider-Man, the original Spider-Man right. trilogy. And so Sam's very successful. At that time, Sam had done the Evil Dead movies. And so he was kind of like a cult horror film director. But Joe was his guy. They had a really special relationship from their youth, which I can't speak enough about in your, in your own pursuits. It's sort of like... Most of the time, the relationships are going to be what gets you the work. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, Talk about that all the time. Yeah. I mean, there's just no other way. And so um, so Sam was going to produce, uh, executive produce, the Hercules, uh, Hercules Legendary Journeys with Kevin Sorbo. Right. And so I kind of came on right when Joe was getting that. And so I got to work on those shows on a lot of capacities, and um, it was intense. I mean, like I... 
I, I still have like a notebook from my time log of my time with him just for fun. And there were weeks I logged 120 hour work weeks. Wow. You know? I mean, and I did that for four years. It that's like that's how intense it is. We were Joe was scoring three one hour long television shows per week. Wow. I mean, so if you think you think about that. So how long does it typically take to score a one hour long show in in well, general? Well, four. For, for somebody like him. For, well, for him, he, you know, and, and a one-hour show might include maybe 30 minutes of score because a one-hour show at that time with TV, commercial breaks, and, yeah. you know, maybe it's like 50 minutes. And right. so, you know, you know what I'm saying. But 30 minutes of music, uh, you, you'd have a week because, you know, this it is... It takes a week to score this, that. Well, it, yeah. it, that's just what you got. You, yeah. know, you know what I mean? Yeah, you got to do is, it. Because this is in the days of classic television where you were booked for 22 episodes. That was a season. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and so it's nonstop go, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's intense. Yeah. So what what were you able to do in those positions when you were working for him on that particular show? Like what was the job that you would have to do? Yeah. I mean, I was I was sort of like a jack of all trades for him where I could um, I could like temp track like I could do click tracks. I could do programming. A lot of times I was I was a really good programmer. So a lot of times if something might be like some fight scene and there was like a percussion kind of jungly drummy thing, mm-hmm. you know, whatever tribal, I could like program out the, the bed of that. And we would talk about stops and starts and hit points and then maybe give that to him. And then he would score over it. Um, I could play on the sessions. You know, I learned how to play a lot of Middle Eastern instruments. And so I could play on it. I could orchestrate for him. And I would do that on cues where he would be flying out to the orchestra date. And I would stay back in Detroit orchestrating and then like faxing copies to the studio what's a fax i don't understand yeah i know what's a, what is this thing you, you thing? speak of fax okay no. so it was sort of like you know i could do everything for him yeah and um you're an, an assistant yeah you're an assistant you're an apprentice you're yeah. kind of like you kind of have to learn to think like him right uh and what his tendencies are and you just you just do it so what know? was the most fun part of of that particular job working with him on those types of shows for you you know, the most fun was like the first time you ever hear yourself, your music on network television. That's, that's, a, that's amazing. It's huge. Oh, yeah. Um, and I remember once he had, he had a party where like maybe one of the shows was, it was like early on when it was being broadcasted. And he also had a huge uh, commercial client base, like advertising. And, and so I remember once I heard like five commercials I had written in the sitting of watching the the television show and it was just like it was you know it was just overwhelming to think that your music is kind of dominating the airwaves for this little moment of time so when you're writing music for commercials is that working for him as well or is it something separate no that was him i just became part of his um and and most of the time the client would know i was writing that i mean he had a lot of commercial work he lived in detroit and so you had every car known to mankind of course yeah um, and so you're, you know, he would kind of set the tone of sort of like, you know, you'd watch the spot together and it was like Chrysler, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, Hey, I'm thinking it's going to be like this. And you go, yeah, yeah, I get it. And I'm thinking at this point when the car turns, you might want to do this. And I'm thinking, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and so he's kind of guiding you the whole way. Um, and then you just go execute it and then he'll, he talks about it and says, Hey, change this or, or that. Yeah. But it's still, you know, it's exciting. What a great learning curve. Totally. You know? I mean, the experience of being in that position, working with someone of his level. Yeah. Just And that's your introduction yeah, into this world. that's my introduction world, into the music. You know, I mean, and the what, crazy thing is that you only setup. have a night. I mean, like on commercials, it was literally like you'd get the spot 4 p.m. And by the next morning, they yep. would expect that that track is written. I mean, you just, 
you just have to learn how to like you go with some sort of weird instinct and this is okay this is what i'm doing and you go for it and you refine it and it's a, it's amazing yeah you know it's not a lifestyle i miss that kind of you know i don't necessarily <laughs> miss that grind but right. it was fun yeah for when it was wow what a great what a great opportunity for you to have in that position and to learn under that setting is that's phenomenal yeah you know i i always say though the hardest the hardest part about doing that is the way, and this is at least for me, is that I, I didn't learn how to find my own creative voice. I learned how to live in his creative voice. Yeah. And that was a skill that I had in college developed that I could understand musical styles and execute them. If it was a Motown track or a funk track or like, why does Michael Kamen sound like this? And why does John Williams sound like this? Or why does, why does, Whatever, you know what I mean? Sure. And so that was very helpful in the commercial music world. Like, hey, I need you to do a track like Metallica. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I get it. I know what right. they do. But then, like, well, who is Jared? What does Jared have to say? I really didn't know. I didn't know myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the biggest drawback. And I think that's really probably what caused, like, the deep desire to move on from that was realizing that I was never going to find myself. I was never going Working to... Working for anybody else, no matter who it was. No matter who it was. Yeah. You're always going to be a conduit for their musical vision. And I felt like I had something to say, but I never was going to say it. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd say that's the biggest drawback, is it's hard to find your own voice. And sure. it's, it's taken me decades to find my voice. You be, know, Is that because you're so used to doing what other people need? Oh, yeah. You oh, know, yeah. And is it you're having to get out of that headspace of what oh, someone yeah. else wants and figure out who you're trying to be at yeah. the same time? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really only been in the last five years that I really, really? feel like, yeah, that I really feel like I'm me. And, okay, so in the last five years, you feel like you're becoming your own identity. Yeah. But between the, that starting point of five years till now... Between that and when you stopped working for for Joe, mm-hmm. how many years in between that were you doing other stuff and still not really feeling like you're yourself? If that makes you know, sense. you'd have yeah, you'd have glimpses, you'd have moments. Yeah. Um, I mean, but I don't know. You're talking about 15 years. Yeah. Wow. You know. Yeah. I think it's good for people, for the listeners to hear. Oh yeah, there's no need to know that. There's no way to the journey of 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 creating, whether you're a painter, whether you're a sculptor, whatever is, and finding your own voice. It's like a lifelong journey. I mean, there are some geniuses that are lucky that they can hit the ground running and boom, it's like instant creativity. Yeah. But by and large, most people, it takes a lifetime to kind of arrive at it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, unless you're like one of these child prodigies, you know, at five, six yeah. years old that can play Mozart, Beethoven, and you're just like, it's it's God gave them a gift, boom, yeah. and they just go. Although, you know, yeah, the, the hard know. thing about prodigy stuff, though, is, like, at that level, it's, like, it's a, that's a technical execution versus, like, versus maybe, like, the artistic expression of that Beethoven piece sure. where, where you could hear it and you'd go, I know who's playing that piano. Right. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Of course. That's, like, that's like, a, that's like the lifelong journey. Right. Versus but you know technical. it's in them. It's, like, yeah. I think... I think it's put in you. If you're going to be able to have that technicality at that young of an age to do some massive amount of music that just makes the world just stand still, yeah. you know, then the creativity is in there. It's yeah. just, it just takes time to develop that. I mean, that's for everybody, yeah. no matter who you are, I think. Yeah. So, so now you're into scoring and orchestrating audio dramas. How many years have you been working on what you do currently? When I left Joe and I went on my own, it took a long time. It took years to find some work. 
okay. to really get some work. And that's just the nature of like, you know, I couldn't really talk about what I had done. Right. Uh, no one knew me. You know, I was just a guy kind of locked in a studio, so I didn't even have relationships. So it took about two years. And um, I had an agent at the time, and he had, we had gotten some horror films out of L.A. Uh, this was like 1999. They were, there was some email going around about a horror company seeking new composers. And I thought, eh, you know, I might as well do it. I'm sure I'll never get this gig, but let's do it. So I submitted my reel, and I got it, which is insane. Um, and so I, they called me, this is 99 and they had a horror film and they were like, you're going to start to, if you want it, you're going to start tomorrow. It's due in three weeks. And I just remember thinking, <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And I looked at my agent and I looked at my brother who was kind of like, we were working together and I'm like, well, let's do it. I'm going to do it. And I did it. And it was insane. It was, I don't think I slept at all. And I got another one and this director really liked what I did. And so I kind of went back to back to back to back on horror films. And, you know, they're pretty, like, low-grade horror movies, and the money wasn't all that great. And it, it, But you're working, and you're, yeah. these are L.A. movies, uh, and you're, you're doing your craft fast. You don't have much time to really rethink what you wrote. Right. But my agent came to me and said, hey, I've heard that Focus on the Family is starting up this genre called audio drama, and they're doing the Narnia Chronicles, and I'd like to pitch you for that. And so he went after that. Um, and they had already committed to another composer, but the producer at Focus on the Family was interested enough to talk to my agent, because I think at the time Focus was really expanding, doing a lot of audio dramas. And so they needed a second composer that could handle it. And so they, my agent sent them uh, some scores I had done of the horror movies. Well, but, but you know what it does is it proves a point that, you know, it proves a point that, hey, this is a guy that doesn't just say, hey, I can write music. Right. But like, hey, he hit the deadline. He had three weeks to do it. It sounds pretty sure. good. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. And I think that gave him the confidence to like try me out. Yeah. And so like in, I don't know, 2001 maybe, I think it was, they gave me The Secret Garden as my first audio drama. And I was horrible. I was miserable. I mean, I, I thought I was going to get kicked off the project. I was so bad. Because it was such a hard genre. It's so different than film. You know, because with film, obviously, the, the visual is informing you. You know, okay. the screen cuts to the mountain, and you go, oh, there's a mountain. Right. And really, on the composing side, you have a lot of options at that point. You could play it big, or you could play it long. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know it's a mountain. Right. But in audio drama, there ain't, there's no visual. And so you really have to paint the picture. And so if, they, if the character says, oh, my goodness, look at that mountain, what are you going to do? Right. And I, I just didn't know. I didn't know what to do. I mean, yeah. it was terrible. But I did it. I made it through the secret garden. But the nice thing was is that it paid really good. Okay. Um, and we're like, I could stand in front of an orchestra and start hiring an orchestra. And so that was like, honestly, to me, that was the biggest draw was I get to stand in front of an orchestra. And so I, you get to conduct an orchestra, yeah. and you're, you're writing out all the parts. All the parts, yeah. And this is because you learned how to do this in college, right? Well, you through Leduca. The college stuff was minimal. It's Leduca that really taught that me. That taught you how that, to orchestrate. How to orchestrate, and, and, and really what does it mean to it take, yes, and yeah, get, get parts out and click tracks. What does it mean to actually take a piece of music and bring it into reality? Okay. You know, yeah, I learned all those skills with him. Gotcha. But that was the draw. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Um, and, and the fact that the projects were really nice. They were like The Secret Garden, and it was like I got to write a new score for Les Mis. I did The Hiding Place, like Little Women. These are like classic stories mm -hmm. that had rich characters, and I was really ready to just move on from horror movies and the killing and the blood. Of course. You know? So I felt like on a creative side, I could like... I could really dive into it. And then on a money side, I wasn't really interested in the money. I was interested in using the money to 
by the orchestra that would get me on the stage right. to really just hear how does your music sound when you put it in front of people, you know? Yeah. And, well, and what was that first experience like getting to conduct an orchestra? Brutal. Brutal. Really? They all laughed at me. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Well, you know, the, the orchestras are notoriously jaded. These right. are, you know, these are A-list studio guys and gals that have been there, done that. Every day is just like, who's next? It's just another day for them. Who's next? Yeah. Um, and they gave me a really hard time. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably pretty normal, I would probably think, for any young composer. I was young. I mean, I probably was like 30. That's pretty young to get on a conducting stage and to be like, here we go. So, um, but, but then it got better. It, over the years, I remember I put the Little Women score in front. They were giving me a hard time, and I remember thinking, oh, man, this is going to be rough. And I had booked a few days. It was a lot of money. You know, I'm spending all my money on that. But they played the opening cue of the theme of Little Women, and I remember it stopped. And someone said, wow. And I was like, it's going to be a good day. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I felt like from then on little, out. Little wins. Yeah, that became sort of like, then they were on my side. Yeah. And then it felt like we started to get really good takes in every other score I would do because it felt like we're a team. Like, hey, yeah, man, you know, if I do good, you do good, and I get to come back, and we all work and yeah we all get to make money yeah and doing what we love yeah and it was good music it wasn't silly music it was real and so they felt like this was uh, a departure from maybe with the stuff that they were playing maybe where a country chart would be kind of safe in stock mm -hmm. this was like adventurous score so every it was fun then it, then it got fun so did you end up bringing the same people back over yeah. and over yeah and so what i did is i developed a good relationship with the contractor and we would talk about players and i would talk about who i want on the date and who i don't want to see again um, instruments that I felt like, you know, hey, I, I didn't really like that that instrument. I feel like, can we get a better player? Yeah, yeah sure. totally. But you have a team, and, and but pretty much everybody. That was only a few people. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, that's interesting to, it's really interesting to know that, that people are giving you a hard time. Like, that just wouldn't even enter my mind. <laughs> you know, so it's funny. like That's you, all that <laughs> enters my mind. <laughs> well, I look at it as you're walking in as a conductor, you know, everybody's working for you. Totally. You would, and one not, would think. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, we're here to, to do a job for this person. You know, I wouldn't think it's okay for me to give you a hard time for what you've created because you're giving me the work. Right. You know, that's just yeah. an odd concept. It is me, an odd it concept. Happens. Yes. Apparently I just think that's the nature <laughs> of like, if you do anything long enough, you have that you couldn't get jaded. Yeah, of course. And you just have to be careful of be like, hey, I need to be appreciative. I am working as a musician. This right. is a miracle. Yeah. Whatever you're doing. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so currently, what are you currently working on right now in scoring for audio dramas? Yeah, so I'm I'm this year has been a this has been a great year. I finished up, as you know, I finished up a, a huge score to Robin Hood which was kind of a dream of mine and a fear of mine because Michael came and scored a Robin Hood was essentially why I got into film oh, yeah, music. Okay. And so when I was called for Robin Hood, I was sort of like at the same time, I was like, yes. And then this like cold fear went in of like, <laughs> no. but you'll never write like Michael came. You know what I mean? Sort of but like. But you're not supposed to be Michael Kamen. No, of course. And they said after, they're like, absolutely, we do not want anything to do with Michael Kamen. That's not this production. But anyway, that was an amazing experience. It was a three-hour score. It took me six months to write. That was a wow. bear. That was a bear. That's crazy. That was like redefining discipline and focus for me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Wake up, you're with Robin. You wake up, you're with Robin. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so that was cool. Um, 
I'm currently doing some Adventures in Odyssey, which is kind of like a long-standing audio yeah. drama for Focus on the Family. They bring me in on like big adventures, and so there's a big Titanic adventure. Nice. So I'm. I love Titanic. So, but again, they said no James Horner. Right. You know what I mean? And that's great. And I wasn't going to do that anyway. But so that's what I'm in the middle of right now. I'm, I'm in the middle of the scene where the iceberg will hit the ship. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. Like, this isn't music related at all, but Titanic is one of my favorite subjects. I just love. Oh, in general, the subject. Just of the it. subject of yeah, the sure, Titanic sure, sure. has always been something that's fascinated me. And so, anyway, yeah. that, that has nothing to do musically, but let's talk about. What would you tell somebody who is wanting to get into scoring audio dramas? Wait, let me back up. Mm -hmm. Explain what an audio drama is for our listeners. Like, what's the difference between an audio drama and, yeah, they say a book on book tape, tape or the, like there's a difference yeah. to it. But what is that difference for people listening? You know, and where do you get an audio drama yeah. to listen? That's a good to? question. Yeah, so audio dramas are like fully immersive stories. They're a film minus the visual okay um so like robin hood had 60 actors in it they hire foley artists they hire sound designers okay they hire a composer and so literally if you took a movie and you just turned off your screen and listened that would be that the sound the of drama. the audio drama so it's incredibly immersive um they're they're very well produced very yeah. well written very well acted um it's a, it's, a, it's a throwback to the old 1920s when that's how people were entertained. They would listen to the radio and they radio would hear... Radio theater. Yeah, the radio right. theater. And so that's what it is. It's, um, it, it's, so it's, a, it's like a small genre, but boy, is it creative and artistic. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of good people in it. Because um, there's big actors, too, that oh, are playing these parts. I mean, when I did St. Patrick, I, John Reese davies from Lord of the Rings was, right. was Patrick. Wow. And I remember hearing that voice, and I just remember thinking, you got to be kidding me. I, can't, I get to be a part of this. I can't believe I'm doing this, yeah. you know. So, yeah, they. I mean, so with Robin Hood, it was Gwilym Lee, who was just in Bohemian Rhapsody, and he is he is by far the best Robin Hood ever, period, on any stage. Like like any version of Robin Hood, I would put Gwilym Lee as the definitive performance of Robin Hood. Wow. He's that good. Um, and where are they available? You know, right now, I mean, now they're, they're streamed through, like, Audible, but every company has their own website where they still sell physical products, okay. you know, like an actual old-school CD, mm -hmm. because they are still marketed sort of like family trip. Like, hey, you're going on a family trip. What are you going to do to pass the time? Hey, listen to an audio drama. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then it's streamed for the modern-day listener, too. Yeah. So what's the difference in saying an audio drama versus a book on tape when it comes to music? Uh, you know, there's a different level musically. Yeah. My experience with book on tape, and I can't say I've listened to a ton of them, but essentially it's kind of like they just use some canned music that just hit transitions. Right. You know, like sort of like the chapter ends and it'll go, blah, da, 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 yeah. you know, whatever. But with the audio drama, you're scoring, you're in scene. And yeah. so, you know, generally speaking, if an episode's 30 minutes, you're going to, you might have 15 minutes of score. And so, you know, you're in the battle with Robin and you're, you're doing the arrows and boom, someone goes down and, you know, and, and the horse comes riding in and the glory of you, you're hitting it all, you right. know, it's yeah. uh, it's intense. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I got to hear a little bit of, of Robin Hood that you let me mm -hmm. yeah. kind of take a peek into and, and it was fantastic. It was just like, I had to get my, my wife and my daughter over and say, listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is incredible. And like, this is our friend who's doing this. And yeah. You know, what I yeah. love about the genre is that it's, um, it's a really a callback to the classic film score way, which is John Williams' way, which is which is called the leitmotif, which is characters have themes. It's very thematic driven. Okay. Um, and a lot of modern day film scores were in kind of like a rut, 
I'll call it a rut, where film scores are very anti-theme. It's very like staticky, atmospheric, vibey. And they're cool. They're cool. They're effective. But you don't walk out going, boy, I, I love the theme to that movie. You wouldn't even know what it was. You know what I mean? Right. And there's sort of like, there's a reason why people flock to symphonies now and they hear the performances of Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Harry Potter and E.T. to picture. You know, symphonies are performing them now right. with the picture. Live. And yeah, and, and people flock to it. I mean, my, my kids, who are six and ten, love the music of John Williams. Well, what do they love about it? They love the melody. There's just something about a melody sure. that just digs deep into their soul. And that's what audio drama is. These are producers and directors that are looking for big-time melodies. Characters have melodies. And then sort of like the understanding of how to craft that melody and iterate it and reorchestrate it based on the scenes you're in. Mm -hmm. So that's totally where I always wanted to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're so doing the thing that you always wanted to do. do. In a without genre, the visual. without the visual, and I think actually it's making me, it makes you better. It made, it's made me better as a composer, because I've locked into, well, what's really going on? Mm -hmm. What's going? Why, what's the character motivation? What's he thinking about? How can I tell the story of that so-called mountain that you're not seeing? How am I going to paint it? How am I going to creatively help you go? There was a mountain there, and it was huge. But you're like, well, you didn't see it. Right. Yeah, but boy, that music told but me felt it was it. huge. Yeah, I felt it. So I feel like it is like the perfect training ground for me to just get my craft to the, as sharp as it can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's fantastic. Man, <laughs> such a cool thing that you get to do, you know, be a part of. And It's horrifying. I always say, though, it's, it's horrifying. It's scary, it's, I'm it's sure. So, it's cool and horrifying at the same time that every day you have to go up to your studio and write music. You know what I mean? There's yeah. no such thing as a bad day. And that's like... I think that's the, that's what I would tell anybody who wants to create is sort of like, I can't overstate the discipline of the creative process that, that the word inspiration to me is, is hardly real. I don't, I don't give that word a lot of validity. I feel so inspired. I'm going to go right. Well, but then you go up here and again, nothing yeah. like, well, boy, a lot of good that inspiration did you right. Yeah. Sort of like, what any if you're going to write music for a client with a deadline you have to learn how to write music you know what i mean yep. and it's this strange balance of discipline mm -hmm. and understanding your craft and all the techniques and doing all of the hard boring work that will internalize and then come out you know what i mean sure um i mean the theme with robin hood is it's i wrote 50 themes before i got approved 50 themes it took me two three days and it was agony. I thought I was dead. And how long is a theme? You're talking about eight bars. Okay. You know, I mean, you just, hey, because they, they, before you start, for the dramas, before you start, they want the theme, the right. main theme. You know, right. if it's St. Patrick, they want, what's Patrick's theme? Right. What's Robin Hood's theme? Um, and I just wasn't getting it. It was like, man, I'm close, but I'm not there. You know what I mean? And I was horrified. But sort of like, um, besides praying on my knees and begging God not to take this gig from me, because I really want this gig. Like, for me, it was the power of iteration, of, like, the technique that I learned of, like, okay, you did that. You like it. Change it. How do you change it? Change this note. Change this rhythm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, 50 versions later, you go, ah, that's it. I can't believe I didn't see that in the first place. Right. But sort of, like, that discipline of, like, if you don't feel inspired or you don't feel like writing music, I would say go write music. Because if you keep plunking away, you might find something. And you go, there, there it is. Oh, right. my gosh. But had I not spent three hours 
And then you go, whoa, wait a minute, that's cool. You know what I mean? Of course. Um, And that's, I guess, the thing that I can't overstate because it's not glamorous. It's just hard work. But boy, is it fun. But you never would have got there if you didn't do the hard work. But once you get that idea and you go, that's going to do it. That's the idea that's going to get me through this scene, you know? It's beautiful. Yep. I mean, I, I deal with that when I'm writing for TV projects. You know, I'm having to score... You know, shorter versions of what you do, much, much shorter. You know, usually it's two and a half minutes of a whatever it is that they want, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to three hours worth or yeah. Yeah, 16 yeah. minutes at a, at a time or whatever. But it's still the same amount of you have to dig in, you have to sit and just figure it out because it has to be done. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if you're inspired or not. Right. You have to just sit and just clunk away at it yeah. until something comes out and you're like, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's kind of cool. And then... You kind of build around that right. and a little bit more, a little bit more, and then yeah. you've, you've got something. Right. You know. Absolutely. And that's the way it works. So what would you tell somebody who wants to get into scoring, mm-hmm. working, whether it be for audio yep. dramas like you do or or working for a, another composer who's working on big projects? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always tell people it comes back to relationships. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, it's really, it's who you know and building a relationship and trust with people and those types of things. So we know that's a huge part of it. Yeah. Probably the biggest part. But let's say you don't have a relationship with someone. You know, you're just, you're looking for an opportunity mm-hmm. to get into doing this, yeah. you know, on, on any level. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest people to do that are looking for those opportunities? Well, the first thing I would say, even before the relationships, is sort of like if you're going to pursue music for media, music for a story, whatever the vehicle might be, I would say the most important thing is that you love the storytelling process and you love the storytelling process more than you love music. Like I always say, I'm not being hired to write my first symphony. I have no desire to write Jared's symphony number one, right? I want to be a part of a team telling a story, right? Mm-hmm. People say, you just write, hey, when you, when you have a day off, do you write music? And I'm like, no, I have nothing to say. Tell me a story and I've got plenty to say. Okay. So I would say that first you've got to be in love with the storytelling process and separate that from music, meaning like how does a story play out? Why did you like it? You know, what did you learn about the characters? You, because that's what they're hiring you for. They're hiring you to understand the story, go deep and emote, right? They don't care your technique will help you, but they don't care about the technique. They don't, you know, well, hey, look at this. I did this amazing harmony of polychords and blah, blah, blah. Dude, I don't care. It doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't hit me. So I, I would say, like, you got to love the story. And you also have to love working with people. And I can't say that enough. And that was probably, um, I love, like, I love working really closely with directors and writers. Like, we, like, we're on the phone a lot together where we talk about scenes. I'll call them, hey, I don't understand this scene or blah, blah, blah. But I guess my point is, is like, love working with people because music for media is a collaborative process. There's a lot of people that go into the thing you're hearing. And even though it's your music and you're the dude writing the notes, a lot of people are influencing you and how you perceive the notes and choose the notes, you know, and that's totally fine. And that's great because they're going to help you understand things that you might not understand yourself Mm -hmm. you know they're going to help you in the jams they're going to help you rethink it look through the prism a little differently go oh man i never i didn't know yeah robin he's probably pretty angry right here let's play off the anger let's not play you know what i mean that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff so i would say that that's so important and then on the side of just getting started is you know you're probably gonna have to work for free 
you're probably going to have to do like low level entry projects with students. And I would say, man, hook up with your peers, wherever you're, wherever you're living in, hook up with them. The person that's trying to do their first audio drama and is doing it kind of on a shoestring budget. The filmmaker that's trying to do his first film, be like, hey, I'll score it, right? Don't expect to get paid because he doesn't have any money. You know what right. I mean? Um, but it's opportunities. But it's opportunities. And, you know, and I scored a lot of indie films because you just never know if the director was going to hit, you know, and in my, in my case, they didn't. But every successful film composer, you can link the director back to them. You know what I mean? And so that's kind of the thing is just building the relationships. And But also, too, is then that director comes to like you, and even if he's your age and you did the movie for free and he really liked you, he's like, oh, yeah, man, hey, Jared did that. He did my film, and he was great to work with. He was cool, and, yeah, give him a call. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a slow build. It's a, it's, you know, yeah. it's, this, it this is time. something I've been doing, you know, 25 years, you know, and it's still a, it's still a grind. Like you, you, sure. it's, it's the life of a freelancer. You and know? we're always learning and growing and getting better. And, but there's always something to learn. Oh, there's always something to learn. I have, yeah, I have a very long list of things I need to keep learning, you know? Yeah, of course. And I guess that's something too, I would say too, in, in, as it relates to, and this is just more of like the pursuit of your craft is always keep learning and always keep growing. You, you, if you think you arrived, you haven't. Yeah. Um, and so, like, for me, I'm always at a thing of, like, where I, I believe in, in, like, writing, in studying, and sort of, like, reflecting, you know? So I'm always, you know, I've probably got three or four scores of other famous composers that my head is always in trying to understand their music. I'm always writing, and I'm always sort of looking back on my stuff, going, oh, I wonder what I could do differently. There's just, that process has to be, like, really built into you. Otherwise, um, you'll just never really grow, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So just thought I'd throw that in. Yeah, that's great. The love of learning. Great. The love of learning. That's great information. Can we talk a, a little bit about the difference between composing and ghostwriting? Mm-hmm. So for listeners to know what the difference, because there are some people who, who have some of the circles I run with, people ask that question, you know, should I ghostwrite and what is ghostwriting compared to composing or whatever else? Yeah. And so what would the difference in those things be for you? Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the term ghostwriting or use it, whatever you call it, whatever you want, is sort of, it's based off of the fact that big time movies and TV shows are, require a lot of music in a very short time. Mm-hmm. So I always make that pretty clear. Ghostwriting is not you know, because they're always people are always like, oh boy, you know, was that was the composer no good? And you're like, no, the composer's amazing. It's just that it's just it's it's, they just it, don't have time to it's do an it all. inhuman. You can't one human being cannot do it, right. and so they have a team, and that's that's the reality of of many movies you'll see today is it's written by a team, even though it might say music by so and so. But with that comes, um, you know, the lack of credit on a visual sense and the lack of compensation, appropriate compensation, which would be through like ASCAP or BMI. Um, and you're sort of like a, an independent contractor that's just kind of stroked a check for writing and, mm-hmm. and sort of like signing away all your rights to it, you know. It's like a work for hire. It's a work for hire, yeah, and you're signing away all the rights to it. And so, you know, with that... Which it, means you're not going to get paid royalties on the back end. Correct. Or yeah. Technically it, The saying. fee that you were just paid for, Is it? that's it. Yeah. That's it. Um, and so that's 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 a that's a tough road to go down if that's how you want to go down because mm-hmm. you never know what project will blow up and become the biggest thing since sliced bread and and you don't get a part of it you right. know what I mean but that's to say you you learn um, but but also it's there's sort of like 
there's I had the experience of learning under someone who was very good and getting thrown into a business where I just had a I just had a swim. But there's also something beautiful about learning it yourself all alone and finding your own voice from a very early age, mm -hmm. which is what I didn't do. You yeah. know what I mean? So my trade-off was I didn't find my creative voice. It took me a long time to do that. Um, so, you know, I, I think there are, there are some ghostwriting, some composers that are giving some screen credit. Some, some, like I do know that there are some bigger composers where they're sharing screen credit. So they might say music by big composer and so-and-so right. you know what i mean sure. um and then like i've heard of some interesting business arrangements where the main composer might take 50 percent of your films once you split from him like he sort of gives you a visual credit in the sense of like elevating you mm -hmm. but you almost become like a business investment sort of like a pyramid scheme to him so that when you launch out you actually are established because he's credited you, you know what I'm saying. Right. But then you, he might have fifty percent of your of your royalties for five years. You okay. know what I'm saying. Yeah. But that's at least better. Sure. Do, do you know what I mean? Of course. Um. But every situation is unique. Yes. But I would always say I would approach it with I would personally approach it with trepidation. Okay. You know. But that's me. Um. But you got to start somewhere. That's true. You know, and so it's it's hard for me to make the judgment call when people even ask, you know, hey, did you wish you did that or do you just went, do you wish you went to USC? You know, there's a part of me that still is like, man, I wonder what would have happened if I would have gone to USC. Because you never did. Because I never did. You ended up you just got, going to you work. You got the opportunity to go straight to work for, yeah. for the guy. But you're like, hey, I wonder what I would have learned from those guys. Those are great composers yeah. out in LA. You know, I wonder who I would have met and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. I was tenacious. I would have worked hard. Yeah. You know, I just, but you can't go back. You know, you are what you are. Yep. So. Tell me what some of your favorite projects have been that you've worked on in the audio drama sector. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say that there are there are two very special projects for me that I always look on back on. Is in two thousand four or two thousand five, I had the opportunity to do an uh, an audio drama of Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place, hmm. which is the true story of her family. They hid uh, Jewish refugees during the Nazi occupation of Holland. Okay. And that was that was intense. Um, you know, it's a true story, and it's it's a tough ending. There's a lot of death, and you know, Corey loses all her family in the camps. Right. Um, and I just remember wanting to approach that project with a sort of like respect for this is true. And so I did a ton of research on like like Polish post-war composers because like music changed at that point in time. You know, that was the first global atrocity we ever we really knew about you know what i mean mm -hmm. and it was the first time that people then reacted to it like art changed art reacted to this horrific thing okay and, and music changed and it's very identifiable if you listen to it i would know yeah it's post-war music and so i really wanted to do this score that was like gut-wrenchingly honest that you would say wow that music sounds like it's from the time and so, man, I just did so much research into all of these Polish composers to try to just understand their voice and their take on it. And then, um, and, you know, and then getting that score performed by a live orchestra was just, uh, that, was a, that was a top flight moment for me, for sure. That's cool. Yeah. Wow. And then the other one would be the Trials of St. Patrick, you know, like working with John Reese davies on that. Um, and it's such a, his story is so fantastical. You know, you're talking about Christianity in the fourth century in a pagan, a pagan, Britain and a pagan Ireland that's under Roman rule, but it's basically like an outpost. You know, it's just so hard to imagine. And and very pagan religions of the Druids and child sacrifice. It's you know, it's this yeah. is this it's is hardcore this stuff. This is hardcore stuff. Yeah, yeah. But 
it, it felt like like a Lord of the Rings moment for me. You know what I mean? Like I love Lord of the Rings. I right. love Howard Shore's score to it. It's just very meaningful to me. But it's and then John Reese Davies, of course, being the voice. Right. It, it was like you got to kind of sit in that landscape, which I loved. Um, and then that score enabled me to work. Um, I uh, you know because you needed like a Celtic instrument. You know, you're in Ireland. But I'm like, wow, what am I going to do? And I had this I had this dream that somewhere out there. There is um, a woodwind player that really knows the style. Like, not just like happy-go-lucky Celtic music that you hear nowadays, but really the old stuff. And everyone laughed at me. I talked to a lot of musicians in town, and they all laughed. I'm like, that doesn't exist, man. It doesn't exist. I was like, you know what? I'm not done. And I scoured YouTube, and I found this girl. And she, um, she lives in Germany, but she is Kel she's from Celtic region of France. Her YouTube stuff knocked me out. And... I like, I put in a comment sort of like, I mean, I was like a total stalker of like, hey, I love your music. Can we talk? Do you know what I mean? Sure. And she wrote me back. And so she played on my score and it was amazing. I mean, she has like a degree in medieval music from somewhere in wow. Germany. How random. Oh, totally random. But man, what she did was like no other. Like all the embellishments. Mm -hmm. And even she played a gems horn, which is the horn of a, of a cow, you know, like a, like a, like a, um, like we think of the shofar, which is the big ram horn that like Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Right. But like in Ireland, you have a gems horn and it's like the, the, like the horn of a ram. Okay. It's very, it's like very small, but it's, it's a totally pitched instrument. And so she had all these ancient instruments, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and so I, we worked over Skype uh, for the score where I would write stuff and she would play it and then I would import it and write against it. And it was just glorious, you know? Um, and then I had a vocalist, a, a girl that I love working with. Sarah Vanderplug, and she sung Gaelic for me. And Gaelic, you know, is a dead language. No one speaks it anymore. And so I found a, I found a translator that could, like, so I was able to actually get stuff translated into the southern dialect Gaelic region, what Patrick would have heard. And, you know, so, like, the words that she sung were the words Patrick could have heard. Right. It was just, and then so she took, I paid for her tutoring lessons so that she could pronounce it correctly. And it was just stellar. It was like the... Like, just a creative experience at 11. You know what wow. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I just look back at that with, like, such satisfaction. That's amazing. And the fact that you would think of the attention to detail to go look for these people that do these particular things. Yeah. It's not just, you know, finding someone who, you know, can play an instrument that's yeah. similar to that. Like, you're having to get really, really specific yeah. for that particular I project. I, you know, and I love that part of music. I love that stuff, yeah. you know, the the, re de the real detail. And to, of course, when you're talking about like true stories, I don't know. I just felt like, I don't know, I felt like I owe it to him. I owe it to Patrick to like, let me give this thing my best. Yeah. If I'm going to do this, I'm going down all the way, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I've listened to, to parts of it, uh, of what you've done on that, and it is phenomenal. Oh, thanks. That's so cool. Thanks. Yeah, now you know the back end story of yeah. it, you know. Thanks for sharing not just that. A, not just someone playing a flute, but it's like, that's the real deal stuff, Yeah. you know. That's incredible. Wow, thank you. How do people find you online and find out where to, to listen to these dramas if uh -huh. they want to check out your sto the stories that you're a part of? Yeah. 
Well, I, you know, I have my website, jaredgpasquale.com, and the, the, those under my credits, they get linked. All the shows would get linked. Okay. Um, I also have a YouTube channel that I do a lot of behind-the-scenes features of, okay. like, kind of the process that I would go through to write the score. And those are kind of, like, just personal favorites of mine as I look back. And it's, like, it's more about you can listen to the music, but you can really get inside my head about how I... How and why you did that. How and why I did it, And yeah. where would that... Where would you that find that? That would just that? be, like, I'm just... I have my own YouTube channel under my name. Okay. Yeah. Should be... Put me into YouTube, and I think I'll come up. It'll pop up there. <laughs> awesome. Better. Well, that's fantastic, man. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, and Marty. Sharing thanks. your story. And yeah, thanks for having me. So cool to, to know all the different projects that you've been a part of and in TV and and audio dramas and focus on the family. And, you know, it's just a cool thing that you get to do. Thanks. And I appreciate I'm it. I'm honored to know you and be friends with you and get to experience your story from from this side of, of life. Oh, yeah, thanks. So, well, my pleasure, man. All right, buddy. Thanks. Bye. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jared. Learning more about audio dramas and composing and scoring for those types of projects and also for TV and film type projects as well. Remember, Edenbrook Music is here to help if you need consulting services via phone, FaceTime, or Skype. Be sure to get in touch with us and let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.